startup unless you have customers is kind of an expensive hobby. If you don't ask for money, no, very few people will volunteer money for you. And, and learning to ask is a hard but important lesson. It's important to have a group of CEOs that are kind of in the same cohort as you. So many things have changed. I, um, I mean, the same as I still have my co-founder, John. I get more excited about what we're doing every day. Because as founders, we're naive optimists. Getting the first customer always is harder than the first 10. Getting the first customers is so tough. Hi, I'm Ted Karstensen, and I'd like to welcome you to Caveat Founder, a regular series featuring founders sharing their experiences building developer-facing companies. Gain insight into what it takes to build a successful developer-facing company by hearing about big wins and epic fails directly from founders themselves. Hey, Sean. Hey, Edith. It's been uh, it's been about two years since the last time we recorded a, a Caveat Founder podcast. And so it's been about two years since I learned something useful from you. Teach me something <laughs> new, Edith. Teach me something new. Well, you're our advisor. I mean, I learn everything from you. That's that's the that's the transfer of knowledge. Uh, I think in Silicon Valley it goes both ways. But it's great to be back two years later. Yeah. So the funny thing is, I've basically known Sean for a lifetime of uh, my current company because we met in Alchemist, where he was our coach, and we entered Alchemist basically a month after we started. Which is awesome. And Edith met me before my current company, Outlier, even got started because I didn't even start the company until in that year that I met her. So it was actually the about six to nine months after I met you that I even started this company. Yes. Do I, do I look two years older or do I look 10 years older? You know, Sean, you look ageless and timeless. <laughs> like, like a sheet of granite. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take uh, it. And, uh, I'm not even going to ask about me because like, uh, I, don't, I don't want to know the answer. Edith, you run ultra marathons. I'm pretty sure the world couldn't wear you down if it tried. <laughs> I do feel older and wiser now. I am not an advisor, but I teach a class at Alchemist on fundraising, and it's just everything I wish I had known. And so what's the biggest thing that you wish you'd known those two years ago that you know now that you teach everybody about? Well, the most obvious one is you got to ask for money. And I remember because uh, you had been our coach and you'd kind of seen me like tearing my hair out, stressed about fundraising, and you never volunteered any money. And finally, uh, Finally, I asked you, and you immediately said yes. And I was kind of pissed off. I was like, <laughs> "Why? You, you saw how stressed I was. Why didn't you offer money?" You're like, "You need to learn how to ask." <laughs> it's always a philosophy. I feel like if if you don't ask for money, no, very few people will volunteer money for you. And and learning to ask is a hard but important lesson. And you're right. It's amazing how many times founders will just go talk to investors about what they're doing, and leave the meeting never having asked. And thought, I guess they think people will volunteer to give you money. Freely, I just not how the way the world works. And the funny thing was, I gave Patrick, who you were also coaching, that advice, was just like, go ask him for money. And Patrick was like, I can't, I can't. And then finally, like a month later, I was uh, coincidentally like lurking in a sofa nearby when I heard him ask, and you immediately like, yeah, what took you so long? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't try to be one of those coaches that plays mind games with people, but I feel like there's a point where like when you when you know to ask, you're ready to have that conversation. I think it's a good skill also for sales. Oh, it's it's amazing how many founders will go through the whole sales process and they'll never actually ask for the deal. Yeah. Which is, it's mind-boggling how often that happens. Whereas, you know, when, you, when you've done this for a little while, the very first thing you're doing is asking for the deal and every time thereafter. Well, you ask for the deal, you qualify the person, you figure out if there's even a possible deal. Like, is, is, is there a fit here? Do you have budget? So so two years in, Edith, so two years ago, you were getting started with LaunchDarkly. Uh, that now you are a Series A funded company, one of the best investors in Silicon Valley, one of the fastest growing SaaS businesses out there. You know, things are different now. So what's what's the same though? What is the same today, even after all the progress you've made as it was two years ago when we last spoke? 
So many things have changed. I um, I mean, the same as I still have my co-founder, John. I get more excited about what we're doing every day. It does get easier. Like the beginning, I think we talked about this before, is so tough. Like, I mean, you're kind of in that state right now where you're getting your first customers. Getting the first customers is so tough. I will say that it always feels harder than you think it should. Whether or not it's as hard as it should be is a good question for future generations to look back on. But getting the first customer always is harder than the first 10 in the first 20, I don't know why it always is harder than you think, even after having done it before. And this is, of course, my not my first company. I feel like even with the expectation set of knowing how hard it should be, you always just never really consider how hard it's actually going to be. And I think maybe maybe it's because as founders, we're naive optimists because we believe we can do these things. And that's what lets us start these companies. And maybe that's why, you know, I systemically always underestimate how hard things are, because I always see how things can be done instead of the things that will bump up along the way. But it really does amaze me. In fundraising, in sales, in recruiting, these things always take three times longer than I think they'll take. And even when I adjust my initial expectation, I'm like, <laughs> it's going to take three times longer. So I'll adjust my initial expectation by a 3x multiple. Then it takes three times longer than that. There's some sort of weird self-fulfilling prophecy going on. I think, so we just had our, our sales retro um, this morning. Like we do a monthly deal review and I think one thing that changes as you get further along is that you have figured out a lot of like, so we've figured out our, our lead pipeline, you know, where we have a repeatable process of leads come in, we do this activity, this activity, this activity. In the beginning, you don't have any of that. No, it's it's true. In fact, I just, I just had lunch with another founder and he was mentioning that when he was first started selling, which was around 2014, so about two years ago, three years ago, the problem was he didn't know what concerns were going through the minds of his customers. And so he'd sell the product and he tried to proactively get ahead of them, but he had no idea what they were thinking. And now, you know, two, three years in, he knows exactly the concerns that flash to their head. He yeah. pitches his product, then he's immediately heading off those concerns because he knows exactly what's going through. And I think that's what happens over time. Trial and error, you learn those things, your process gets refined. But at the beginning, I mean, you, you don't know especially with the kind of products that, that we build here in technology, they're new, right? Yeah. They're things people haven't seen before. And so you show a new thing to somebody who's never seen it before, how do they evaluate it? What concerns do they have? Like they, they have no context on which to judge it, so they just start rambling off things that are the first to mind. But after a while, you see enough customers, they get familiar enough, you start to peel it back and you build those processes, or, or you don't. Yep. And I think, the, frankly, the world is full of software companies that have failed because they never found that formula. Well, and I think that the sooner you, you start experimenting on that formula, the better. Like, So we, we tried to sell from like basically day one. I remember I was out trying to get customers. And I think maybe um, it was good that I wasn't a very good coder at that point because I wasn't tempted to code. I was just like, okay, I'm not as good a coder as John. He's much better. I will go get customers. Yeah, it's important to be able to, to lean into it. I think it is true. I think the second time around, one of the things that I've done very differently with Outlier is try to avoid always falling back on my strengths. Because I think if you're really good at something like coding or or you're really good at selling, you'll always fall back on that if things get hard. And so I know I know founders that are great salespeople where the product is just not working and they still keep selling because that's what they know to do, the signing more contracts, signing more deals. And essentially trying to get out of your own mind and say, okay, what's the most important thing I can be doing? Yeah. Instead of the thing that I'm best at or the thing that I enjoy the most. It's tough, but I think it's one of the things that you learn at least the second time around is so important. Yeah, I remember Julian, who was an accelerator, he's like, I f people fall back on their strengths and you need to always be aware that you're not just 
like climbing back into your cave and coding. It's amazing how many software companies have no customers, but amazingly complicated, overdeveloped platforms for doing things. Oh, I cringed. I was talking to a friend the other day. I asked somebody else how they were doing, and he said they're promising, which is VC code for not doing well. (laughs) (laughs) To be perfectly clear, there's only two states of a company. There's promising and killing it. There's nothing in between. (laughs) Yeah, promising, killing it, or dead. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. so I knew that they were kind of struggling, so I asked him how it was going, and the CEO said, well, we're really doubling down on the tech before we launch. And I was just like, oh, no. Part one, like, don't launch, just start selling. It's interesting how many, I feel like how many startup companies have a launch expecting that at the launch everybody will come to you, whereas the launch is really just part of a larger marketing strategy where, frankly, most people don't care. The press press doesn't care. I mean, most people... Don't care that there's a new product. They care about what change that product results in and how you move the world across the board. And you know, people launch and nothing happens, and that's essentially the end of your marketing strategy. And then what do you do next? So it's I think being having that scrappy mindset where you're like, I have to scratch and claw for every customer is actually really healthy early on. Yeah. Because it makes you value every single conversation that you have. Oh yeah. I remember um so in the early I mean you you you've seen our numbers from the beginning. I remember how depressed I would be. Because at the beginning, we were adding a customer a month. And every one of those customers was like me fighting for them. And me and everybody else listening is like, wow, customer a month, that sounds great. Uh, <laughs> and John, my co-founder, was so would be so embarrassed by our numbers. And because you would always write us every month, like, no, great job. And we're like, this is pathetic. We did, you know. It is. It's so easy to measure yourself by all the, the stories you read in the press about how great everybody's doing and so-and-so went to zero to $30 million in revenue in 18 months, and you're like, why am I not like that? And the reality is, you know, people win the lottery. It just won't be you and it won't be me. Like, it does happen. The reality is the rest of us, we wake up, we go to work every day, and we, we hustle to try to build something that scales. It's funny, though, I will say, thinking back to our discussion two years ago, things that I didn't know then that I knew now is interesting about this. One is, I think the first time around when I was starting Flurry, um, you, you you have to pivot a lot as you're building a company, and a lot of that is a result of, I think, mirages, where it feels like something is working, but it's really not. Mm. And you kind of like, it feels like it's working, so you lean into it, and then it kind of, your foot just falls right through it, and you're like, okay, that was, and then this other thing was working over here, but it's not. And there's a lot of false starts, I think, that happens in businesses where those mirages exist. And the first time around, I didn't think about them that way. I thought that, you know, we're just, we're not doing it right. There's something wrong with us. And I think the second time around, I think, I have been well-educated as to, you know, even Outlier, we've had a few different mirages where something felt like it was working, it turned out it wasn't, and then we moved to something else. And even knowing everything I know and going into it eyes wide open, you can still, there's no way to tell the difference between a mirage and something real until you push on it. Well, then you have to. And you do, and you push on it, and a bunch of them won't work. And eventually something will click, and that'll work, and you do keep going with that, and you do this over and over again, and eventually you figure out all the things that worked. But it's, it's one of those things where you, you would think, like the first time around I thought if I had more experience, if I knew what I was doing, we wouldn't fall victim to those. And now I just acknowledge it as part of the journey is that there's no way a priority to sit down and chart out the path you need to take. You just, you have to run into a bunch of walls and that's the only way to solve the maze. Yeah. I remember when we were trying to get our marketing funnels going, uh, I was like, well, Sean, you're so experienced in business, you know, basically tell us what to do. At which point I started laughing hysterically. <laughs> yes, pretty much. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, you you know, Flurry was a big success. Just tell us the Flurry playbook and I can go execute it. And you're like, and you told me something that I actually quote a lot to other people, which is you said, there's no silver bullet. And I'm not sitting here pressing the easy button that I'm hiding from you. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love the easy button. I actually for a while wanted to get those those easy buttons that Staple had and give them out to people and say, oh, you wanted the easy button. Here it is. Because that's really people, I think people think there is some easy button that everybody else has access to that they don't. No. In reality, it's it's just the hard work. It's putting the hours in. It's And it's being listened. That's, so that's the other thing that I think I learned between then and now is there's, we always talk about product market fit, right? Product market fit is this thing that Mark Andreessen coined about the point at which you know your business is working and it's just about scale. Yep. Now the problem is product market fit is like actually something you come about fairly late in the life of your company in, in the early stages, um, so to speak. Because when you start, hopefully you've done some market validation. But in order to get to product market fit, you have to build the product, yep. find the customers, yep. find the market, sell them the product, iterate on it a few times, and eventually that ticket can take years, oh. right? And so in earlier on, you try to do all sorts of other kind of validation. But I've also realized that like there's points along I, I call like product you know, problem customer fit and problem market fit. Like there's different like do people want to pay for you to solve this problem, yes. regardless of how you solve it. Like will people actually pay you? It's shocking how many people are solving problems that nobody would pay them to solve. Yeah, and that's why that's why I liked your advice to get used to asking for money because I worked on freemium products before, and you have to have immense skill to successfully do a freemium product. It's tough, and very few of them. And even even today, a lot of the largest ones are struggling to make money. It's just it's tough. But at the same time, you know, part of why I think this is such an acute point for me is how much when you're starting out, when you've chosen a problem like you did with feature flagging and, and I did with business analysis. How much can you qualify up front? How much do you need to learn the hard way, right? How much can you learn from customer development, from prototyping, from MVPs on your way to product market fit? And how much do you really just have to to try something and have it fail? And it's interesting because I think, again, I kind of expected you could chart out more of it through deep customer development than is probably reasonably practical in any new space. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to screw up and learn. And I think that's the great challenge as a founder is, as you're progressing through your company and you keep over time learning these lessons, you know, I, I meet a lot of founders where they're essentially they're asking me, they're like, listen, I've been doing this for three or four years. I've tried a half dozen things. They're not asking me when they should give up, but really that's what they're trying to ask. They're trying to decide when do I give up and when have I just not iterated enough to find that out. No right answer. And that's the problem is there is no right answer. At some point, you know, imagine you're this founder three or four years in, you've tried a lot of stuff, nothing's worked, right? And you look back and you're like, am I one pivot away from hitting Airbnb? Or am I going to look back and wonder why I wasted my time by not giving up to the point where I, where I should have given up? And it's hard because obviously the only person that can make that that decision is is the founder, right? I yeah. imagine in the history of Flurry, there were multiple points where I think any reasonable person would have given up. Right? We <laughs> so, were, so clearly, the, Sean, our that bank you, account was empty. Clearly, Sean, and, you're not reasonable then. Well, it's the reality is I'm not reasonable. I'm very irrationally stubborn, and so I'm probably never going to be the person who gives up on anything. Um, but at the same time, that also is not necessarily the, you imagine the world, the optimal path you could choose. At some point, there probably is a point where a reasonable person would give up. But as a founder, like, you know, a lot of times people do look in the mirror and say, what am I doing? Am I crazy? Yeah. Like, after that long, if nothing's worked, is this really what I should be doing? Should I be doing something else? And there's those of us that are irrationally stubborn and would never give up. And there's those people who never found companies in the first place because it's too difficult. But then in the middle, I think a lot of people who are their first-time founders, they they haven't been at that point and they haven't really done that self-assessment. And it's a hard question to look in, your, in the mirror and say, should I be still working on this or going to do something else? Yeah, I mean, I um, 
I give advice, as I said, I mentor other startups now. And one thing I say about fundraising is uh, a startup, unless you have customers, is kind of an expensive hobby. Well, you were telling me the story about an investor that asked you about some some questions about LaunchDarkly because they were trying to they were they were trying to filter out the CEOs that treat their companies as a hobby versus those that are actually treating like a business. Yeah, it was funny. It's an amazing so, story. Yeah, it was funny. It was um, I was talking to this investor, and he's like, "Do you know monthly how many employees you have, how much money you make, and how much you spend?" I was just like, "Yeah, I mean, like you see our investor updates every month." how much money we have in the bank, how much we spend. And I, I couldn't imagine not knowing that. How do you not know how many employees you have? That's amazing, isn't it? Uh, and I guess there's just some people you said that just treat it like they're, it's their project. I can believe that because I long have thought there's an inverse relationship between how frequently you appear at industry events and how well your company is doing. Oh, I get torn on this one because I, I go to a fair amount because I was actually, I, I realized now I was our dev evangelists. So I was on the road a lot going to events. So that's, when I say industry events, I don't mean like selling to your customers. I mean like startup industry events. Oh, no, those aren't our customers. I, well, exactly. But, you know, there's a lot of founders that make the social circles and go out. And I, and I do believe that there's an inverse. The more of those kind of like inside baseball startup kind of events you go to, probably the less well your business is performing overall. Because those of us that are focused on the business, we're going to the industry events. Like... To be honest with you, I have always wanted to go to Saster. I've never <laughs> gone because in all the years I've been working in this space, SaaS companies have never been a target customer of yeah. mine. And while I would love to spend money going to commiserate with other SaaS founders about how, what's hard and what's easy, the reality is I'd rather spend that money going to the conferences where my customers actually are going to be. So I have a, a multifaceted answer for you. I remember a really funny story I heard when we were starting out from another investor. He was talking about how he got really pissed off at investment he made in a company where he's like, they just want to be famous. He was like, they, they don't really need to care about a salary. They just want to, you know, go to the parties. To be fair, Edith, I also want to be famous, which is why I'm here doing a podcast <laughs> with you. So we all have a shared interest in being famous. You are famous. I, was, uh, I told you I was in Hong Kong and people were wearing uh, flurry shirts. <laughs> That's awesome. I have a picture. I took a picture of me with a dude in a flurry shirt. Uh, it's, it's kind of like they, they give away those t-shirts after the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> I think some founders are motivated by, honestly, they want to be famous. Others are like they want to, which is, by the way, is not me. That's why I do a podcast. Some people want to be rich and some actually just want to change the world. Yeah. We talked about this actually two years ago. And it's like if you do this and you're going to be able to succeed through the, the ups and downs, it's because you believe in what you're doing and you love it. And I think that it's, it's, it's not to have enough to have one or the other. You can't just enjoy it because if you just enjoy it, you're kind of along for the ride. And you can't just passionately want to do what you're doing, like build what you want to build because if you don't enjoy the process, it'll just wear on you. Oh, yeah. You have to have both enjoyment and this mission to, to create to have enough to get over what are frankly fairly you know stressful extremes. It's, it's tough, the ups and downs. In the, in the morning, you're failing. In the afternoon, you're taking over the world. And by the evening, you're failing again like it's... It's intense. And especially, you know, Edith, as a CEO founder, tell me if you agree with this. It's in a lot of ways the loneliest job. Well, so that was to my point about the second reason. So I do go to some startup events and it's not for customer development. It's because like this last night I went to dinner with some other dev tool company CEOs. It was great. We got to hang out and talk shop, which I love doing. And there were other CEOs and we could talk about that. Yeah, no, it's it's important. I think if you're going to do this, it's important to have a group of CEOs that are kind of in the same cohort as you at the same stages. Yeah. 
where it's all about commiseration. It's just about there's people you need to be able to talk to that have common life experience. Yeah. And there's a lot of problems you you can't talk to your investors about. You can't talk to your other employees about. And sometimes you can't talk to your co-founder about because there are problems with your co-founder, right? Like having a group of people you can rely on. It's a big part of, of overcoming the emotional journey of building these companies and something that I think a lot of people don't do enough of. That's why I love going to events like that. It's like I get to hang out with CEO. Like, there you go. And I, 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 I do the same. I just don't go to events hard to pay for that. Oh, it's like, also, yeah. One of the great things that's happened in the last two years, I feel like in 2014 um, you know, or 2015 versus today, there's a, at least a wider acknowledgement of mental health as an issue among founders than there was back then. And hell, you go back 10 years, there was like no acknowledgement of mental health as a problem. And I do think in a lot of cases that the stress levels, they can exacerbate people's issues and things like depression and everything, these are real. And the, the myth of the, the the ideal impenetrable founder is wearing away a bit where people are realizing, listen, we have to take care of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it struck with me that, um, I don't know if you knew this, but one of the Alchemist's early founders uh, committed suicide. He'd been held up. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that at all. Um, he'd been held up when I was in as like this awesome guy who'd raised $10 million, and then I guess the pressure was just too much. Wow. So... That's, so everybody out there, take care of yourselves. Get help if you need it. It's a tough journey. You can't just do it yourself. And just sucking it up and soldiering on is definitely not the solution. And thinking that raising $10 million is going to magically cure all your it's pressure. It's amazing. So so now, Edith, now that you've raised your Series A, tell us about how different it is than the way you thought it was. Did you think that post-Series A everything would be unicorns and rainbows? Or how different is World as a Series A funded company than it was back when you were just a seed stage company? A lot of things are easier. Something I wish I'd done much sooner, and this is advice I give to other people, is to bring in a, a, a biz ops person. And we, we were actually chatting about this the other day. I didn't have a biz ops person. So I was literally doing all the invoices, running payroll, and that was just adding up. And I looked back and I was like, if I had had a biz ops person in place, I could have maybe closed three more deals or run four more blog posts or done something else rather than just kind of suffering. It's nice to have people. Yeah, like, it's nice to have people. Like I remember spending about like two days on the phone with our, our healthcare company once because something had messed up, and it was like that wasn't the best use of my time in hindsight. Stuff that gets easier is you could start to specialize roles more. Like so, before I was the business person, and now we have an actual biz ops person and AEs and a marketing team instead of like just individual people kind of glomming those roles together. What about what about hiring? And and I've always found that things that get harder as you grow are hiring and team motivation. I found hiring much easier because we had more money and we had more things. Like before, it was, like there's gazillions of seed stage companies in the Bay Area. They're, you're nothing really special if you're a seed stage company. And after we had our A, we had more basically cachet. Sure. And what about, so the other, so that's great to hear. I, maybe my time, my time is dated. We haven't raised our series A yet at Outlier um, yet. But uh, what about the motivation? Because then you have more people in your team, right? You can't just sit down with everybody one-on-one -on -one and really map to them. Like motivating a larger team, it gets harder. Or, or would you disagree? It gets different. I mean, so, um, when we're, so when we raised our A, we were eight people. You know, so we had a daily stand-up with the entire company. You know, because it was just the eight of us. Sure. And we, we just ran things a little bit different. So now, now that we're about 24-ish, 25-ish people, I say ish because... Um, we have a contractor. Um, we do a weekly all hands, which before would have been kind of silly when mm -hmm. we're eight people, but now we have actual weekly all hands. And we deliberately think about motivation. Like um, we had a hackathon a couple weeks ago 
Cool. And I actually, I was really sad. One of our engineers was upset we were having a hackathon. He said very pragmatically, like, don't we have important things to work on? And I was like, yes, but if you can't take a day to, like, have some fun at work, what's the point? It's interesting. So so two years ago when we would have chatted, Outlier was two people, just me and my co-founder. Now we're we're 10 people, which is interesting. Um, and it's as it's fun because I think that there's a point where when you're just two people, everything is hard because as you're to your point, you're doing everything. Everything. But there's also a point where I think you grow big enough that you spend more time on the architecture and the organization than on the doing. And I actually enjoy this kind of stage a lot because I still show up every day. I still do things that are impactful for the business. But I don't feel like everything is falling on my shoulders. Yes. You're not trying to decide, should I spend today selling, fixing my health insurance, invoicing customers, yada, 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 yada. You have a lot more focus. You can feel more productive. And so there, I feel like there is this point where um, I actually really enjoy a certain stage of the company. At the same time, I feel like the pressure is the highest. Because in the early, I feel like if it's just you and your co-founder, there's very little pressure, right? In some ways, you're trying to make it work. But if it doesn't work, nobody blames you. You kind of give it a try. And once you're bigger, you've, you've made it to a certain point. And granted, there's been some huge blowouts in the last year for billion-dollar companies that have, have kind of bottomed out, which I, I aspire to never experiencing in my entire life. But there's a point where you've gotten a certain point, you've gotten a certain light. But in this middle ground, you've gotten far enough that people are looking and saying, I really, you know, you should, you should make something of this. You should get farther. You should go take all this potential you built and turn it into reality. And it's, uh, it's, it's in some ways this interesting intermediate point where it's a lot of fun, but it's also the stress is extremely high. Because as your team gets bigger, there's more people to carry the burden. Um, so you're kind of at this intermediate stage. You don't yet have a huge team that can all carry the burden, but at the same time, you have enough of the people that you need to produce something from it. You know, if you're going to invest a million dollars in something, let's, let's hope it produces something. Otherwise, you could have just gone buy lottery tickets. Right? <laughs> or, you know, a lot of guitars. <laughs> So I asked you before, um, what was the same from two years ago today? What is? I wh- couldn't really come up with an answer because everything is different. Which is which is fine. I mean, that's usually the way it is, right? I mean, companies get reinvented every few years because you have to if you're growing. I mean, today you do orders of magnitude more revenue than you did back then. The team is multiples larger than it was back then. Um, but what is what is the biggest difference between the company as it was? And you, don't, you, you, I'm not going to let you take the easy answer of it's bigger and we're making more money. I have a lot more certitude about our path. And you, you've seen me like before. We had It was always pretty open. When, like We have some theories. We're testing some stuff. And uh, to be honest, that didn't really work well when I was pitching investors. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me. We got this. It's all good. I just need your money. It's fine. Because <laughs> yeah, like, like, I always say stuff like, oh, we're going to test these theories. And I didn't say it the right way, which is something I learned. Yeah. Um, now I've tested those theories. Things are working. Like I know we know what what our marketing channels are. We know how to do a, a sale. We know you know we know things, and that makes us have a lot more confidence. Like uh, we had our I told you we had our monthly sales meeting this morning, and we were going around the room. We we're looking at the deals, the flow, and we were basically fine tuning a couple things. But it wasn't the way we were two years ago. We're just we sell to individual developers or to team leads. Like what what are we doing? Yeah, it's it's. I think that clarity is fulfilling in a lot of ways. Um, if you find it, obviously, there's lots of companies that have said before they don't find it. But once you find it, it feels really good. It feels really good. Like I, I was going around the room with the sales team, and like we're they all basically said like we feel ramped, we're pumped. Now we're just kind of tweaking some things. Like, hey, maybe we should 
record a demo for this purpose instead of having to get on a call every time. But like they knew enough to know it's a demo and the demos are going well. It was more just how can we... And it works. And it's, 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 in some ways, I think about it as survival as a competitive advantage. If you can survive those early days and find out what's working, you know, it's very hard to execute well, frankly. Because even, even frankly, a lot of the companies that are, are fairly large in Silicon Valley still don't execute very well. Um, but execution as a core value, if you do it well, is a huge competitive advantage. And a lot of that survival in those early days builds that up for you, right? So all of the failed sales pitches led to the few that worked, that led to the learning about how to sell it. Then the few messages you tried that didn't work led to the message that worked, and that's what you start leaning into. And all of a sudden, after a while, you failed enough and survived enough that you have accumulated enough stuff that's working to have an operational excellence plan to be able to, to move efficiently, and that's what builds a great a great company. I actually think sometimes that if success comes too easily at the beginning, oh, yeah. or if you raise a lot, of, and some companies have raised hundreds of millions of dollars in like their first round or first two rounds, it's really hard to have that operational excellence because you, the world has not forced you to suffer in the way that I think is required to get to it. Uh, not that I enjoy suffering, but ah. it's kind of comes along with the deal, right? Well, you've done two startups. I mean, you must like it somewhat. <laughs> it's clearly a sign of, of you know, mental illness. But um, I do think that there's an element of struggle which is important for building a scalable, long-term functioning business. And the, this goes back to the question is, how do you know at every given point if the, if the struggle you're going through is necessary or the struggle is of your own making, right? I, I was a long-distance runner. And I was used to, after every race, I kind of would assess what went bad and what went well. And so I was like, okay, maybe what this... What went bad? I just ran 100 miles and I'm in pain. <laughs> what went well? I didn't die. Okay, good. <laughs> well, just stuff like, uh, you know, I would run out of water because I had packed the wrong size pack or I, this food started making my stomach upset or it was 97 degrees and very hot or like, you know, or I, I'd not got enough sleep. And so I was used to failing. And I was used to course correcting. I was used to doing it a very like, um, I had this this mantra that's common in ultra running, which was, I will find new ways to fail until I succeed. There you go. And hopefully you live long enough that you've eliminated all the possible ways to fail. That's the, the culture I try to encourage with the company. Like, so today in our monthly review, I was like, okay, what do we do well? What do we do bad? This isn't a judgment, but like the things that are doing well, let's keep doing the things that we're not doing well. That's a proof. Perfect. Well, so going back, if you were to talk, to speak to Edith of two years ago when we were sitting here speaking, what what is the thing that you wish you'd done earlier? A person you wish you'd hired sooner? Or oh, BizOps. BizOps. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I look back at how much time I spent on just stuff. Okay. Like, and I wish I um I wish I'd done that sooner. What do you What do you wish you had told younger Sean? I don't know that there's a lot of things I could have done differently because I think a lot of the lessons that I've learned in building out the outlier business the last two years were things I had to to learn by doing because outlier is a very new product in a new space, right? We're trying to automate the process of business analysis. Nobody even knew what that would look like when we are getting started. Even two years ago when we were talking, I kind of only had a general idea of what it might look like. Today, we know what it looks like, but a lot of what it took to get there was trial and error and experimentation and I think a lot of new things if I was to talk to myself two years ago I would again try to explain to myself that as much as I thought I knew about how to think through the process the reality was you just have to make a lot of mistakes and you optimize for the rate of mistakes and the rate of learning you don't optimize for metrics of success in the early days until you have enough that's working you feel like it's time to hit the gas and start measuring yourself by other metrics and so um that, that expectation would have been the only thing that I would have done. I think, honestly, it's interesting, having done this twice, um, 
you know, I can imagine founders who have started many companies over time and gotten to a certain level of success, not just like start and throw them away. But I think at some point you must come up with some sort of mental, mental framework for ensuring you, you don't fall back into bad habits because it's amazingly easy to do, right? To, to think you know what you're doing oh, or yeah. fall back on what you, what's worked in previous jobs and previous companies. And it's so like sometimes I spend a lot of effort just making sure I don't do that. But at some point, it can't always be that hard. I imagine if you do this enough, you find some way to bypass that, although I have no idea what it is. I think it's helpful to have past jobs to fall back on in terms of technique. Like I think that's actually what gives me advantage. Um, I was older when I started the company. I was in my 30s. But I'd worked at an enterprise sales company. I'd, I'd worked at you know a hardware company. I'd worked at all these different places where I had experience they could reuse. I have something else I would have told myself, actually. I, Edith, I have a very good thing that I almost forgot <laughs> this about. This better be good because you're wagging your finger and excited. So. I, I, yeah, I am super animated, as I always am, about everything in the entire world. So when I was first starting out, Lara had a daughter. Yeah. And I, as, as we talked about it, I think two years ago, being a parent and a founder, I was worried that it would actually impede my ability to be a good founder, to have a kid at home and, and not be able to work 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And I have found so far that actually I feel like it actually has improved my productivity, made me a better founder in a lot of ways. And that's true of most of our team at Outlier, our parents. Yeah, same. And I found that what happens is because we all start working, we drop our kids off in the morning and because we all have to go pick our kids up in the evening and there's basically the every day has, has natural deadlines built in. And so yeah. people are more productive. We don't go to the office and play ping pong. We yeah. go to the office and we work. Yeah. We have to work because if we don't go pick our kids up, nobody's going to go pick our kids up. Yeah. But something I did not expect is, so my son was born uh, in the, at the end of 2015, so after we'd done the podcast episode. And so he was, his first year of life was 2016. It was really hard to be a founder with a newborn. Oh, yeah. My, my, my co-founder, John, same. He had a newborn. So hard. And the interesting thing, the reason it's so hard is the sleep deprivation that goes along with a newborn makes it very hard to function effectively as a founder. Uh, and I managed to do it well. I have no idea how, because it's all basically a blur. <laughs> uh, but somehow I got through it. But I did not realize how big of a roadblock that was. And I think because I was in such a good spot with my daughter, at the point my daughter was two years old, it was really easy because she was sleeping well to, to balance having kids and having the, the company. To have a newborn who, you know, is just learning to sleep and everything, that was a lot harder than I expected. And I don't think I accounted for that very well. Um and then the other thing that happened last year was like we had a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of the relatives in, in the out, general outlier family had a lot of health problems. My mom got sick. She ended up dying this year. And so what I found was that that also really affected, like having your personal life jump up and slap you in the face a lot um, was something that I wasn't prepared for going in or I hadn't really thought about so much going in. Like during the course of Flurry, I had gotten divorced in the middle, like a lot of things that happened. But I don't really under think I understood how those affected me as much at the time as I do now because I, I understood more about my productivity, more about what I could do effectively. And to watch like, you know, the birth of my son and then these unfortunate family events happening with not just me but other members of our team, it's just it's it's really humbling to kind of reset your expectations of the fact that you don't control your universe. Oh. And that you have to these things will come in and they will they'll cut you down and you need to survive them and move on and it's funny because now when I look at, you know, we don't have a lot of competition in our space since it's so new, but when I think about competition, you're tempted to say, look at their price point, look at their sales, look at all that stuff. And I do that, but part of me is also like, I wonder what kind of challenges they're facing, right? Are, are their parents sick or 
Do they have newborns at home? Or like, what else is challenging them that you don't, you'd never see? Um, and I do that because it's a way of humanizing everyone else and not believing that your competition is perfect in every way that you don't, you aren't perfect, that your competition has solved everything that you haven't solved, that you're, you're spending a half a day trying to set up desks for new people, whereas your competition is out there using that hour to sell people, right? Like, the reality is everybody has life that gets in the way. And I've started thinking about that differently now to humanize everybody across the board so I don't hold it against myself when life comes up and interrupts what I'm doing. So here we go, Edith, this is important. You're now a serious age company. What is the funniest story that you have about Launch Darkly about what's happened over the past four, three, four years? How old is Launch Darkly now? Three years. Three years? So the last oh. three years, what's the funniest story? Oh, amongst those is everybody loves our logo. <laughs> um, so our logo is a rocket ship, um, basically launching, very creative. And how it happened was... Uh, this is funny because you were there for this. Um, we got invited to go up and talk to a really important software company. And this was a big deal to us because at the time we were getting basically one lead every month. So, uh, of course, if you're going to go talk to somebody, you need business cards. Uh, the issue was at this point we didn't even have a logo. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to have a logo on a business card. So it was kind of like a backwards of business cards logo. And there's this website called Fiverr where you can pay people five bucks. And we did a rush deal and paid 10 bucks. Um, and Big spender. Yeah. And John, my, my co-founder, I'm like, hey, what do you want the logo to look like? He's just like, just no rocket ships. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, that's such a cliche, no rocket ships. And um, of course, because John and I have been friends since college, I'm like, of course it's got to have rocket ships. <laughs> <laughs> so... We actually had them make three different logos so we could pick the one we liked the best. And one came back with a rocket ship, and that was the one we liked the best. And we got business cards made. Like the, the first run were these incredibly cheap looking ones from Kinko's that I could get in a hurry, you know, because they could do them overnight. And the funniest thing after that is people love our logo. People will be like, How much did you spend? Who designed this? And it's like five bucks. And it's just like, yeah, I think sometimes you over optimize for things that you could just do very cheaply. Like I've seen people spend, uh, oh God, I don't, uh, even startup spend obscene amounts of money on like the best logo. And, and you start realizing that a lot more of what people think about something is the context in which they're viewing it and less about what it looks like. It's it's amazing. Like people like your logo a lot more when they know what you do and they like you. They don't really judge these things in the merits. That's true. That's funny. That's great. I love that. That's awesome. And also I love the logo. Oh, thanks. Great. And um, I, and we give away a, t a lot of t-shirts, so um, thanks for wearing yours. There you go. And my hoodie. Oh, yeah. Both. In fact, at one point I wanted to take a photo. My wife and I were both wearing our, our <laughs> Launch Darkly shirts at the same time completely by accident, essentially parading the brand around our local, frankly, playgrounds. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. We, were, um, we always had this ethos that we didn't have a lot of money because it was so hard to fundraise at the beginning. Like, so our first money in was John and I's savings, and then it was literally like our old boss's money. We would make sure that somebody wore a T-shirt before we gave them to them. Like, I would ask, like, well, no, because some people just give away T-shirts yeah. and you end up with a bag full of them, and it's just so wasteful. Agreed. I, at some point, I have about half of the T-shirts in my closet, I think, are from failed startup companies. Yeah, it's uh, roughly running, some that. Running Although joker. we did, I, a funny story about that, We one, as part of our launch of Outlier, we presented at the Boulder Business Intelligence Brain Test at BBBT, which is the largest independent gathering of business intelligence analysts around. And they have, they have a, they had a studio and they have mugs, but they wanted to make sure you never had to, to, to be seen with a mug from one of your competitors, because you're oh. there for four hours. 
And so they only collect mugs from failed companies. <laughs> basically, as long as it's a failed company, it's not a competition. Now, the problem is this means that you're essentially hanging out with all these companies that failed the <laughs> dinner before. And the karma is a little bit weird about that. So, Well, so something I learned early on from like, I was product manager at an early startup before. And my, my then boss, the founder, gave me good advice. He's like, don't sell other startups and don't buy from other startups. It's true. They go out of business real fast. Yeah, like so we were just using this company called Code Picnic, which we thought was very Is that a cool. real company? Not anymore. They completely disappeared. <laughs> Ouch. That's harsh. So the running joke is like John using a product is the curse of doom to his startup. Okay, you're not allowed to buy Outlier ever. <laughs> I'm not even going to give you a discount. Because he was um, the testimonial on the front page of Jut.io went out of business. Really? Yep. Ouch. Okay. So, so the joke is like, John, if you have a testimonial from him, I not... had a filter for his email address in our sign up. Okay, <laughs> I gotcha. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if all your, I don't know if it's John in particular, just the high mortality rate of other startups. No, it's true. In fact, a lot of our customers, Rally, are not even based in the U.S. Yeah. I think one of my key goals is diversification of of businesses. Because if you live through any macroeconomic cycle, oh, yeah. which I think, by the way, I, I have, as I said last time, the most important characteristic of a successful founder is persistence. Yeah. But somewhere down the list, a few hundred notches, having lived through a macroeconomic cycle is such an important experience to have. Because was... if you haven't, you start to not realize what it takes to prepare for nuclear winter, right? And oh. actually, that was probably a bad time to use the nuclear winter pun because of North Korea. So let me use a different one. To prepare for winter, right? <laughs> Oh. So it's it's because at some point, if you're not prepared for it, it'll just run you over. Oh, I was here in 99. I mean, I remember the dot-com bust. I remember walking down 2nd Street and counting how many new release signs were up every day. Yeah, it's 99, the, the dot-com crash, the financial crisis of 2008. Having lived through a macroeconomic crisis, you understand the importance of revenue diversity, yeah. of, of working with stable businesses in various geographies. Uh, the number of startup companies where all their customers are based in the same city they are. Or their YC the same, friends. I mean, it's it's tough because those businesses are the first ones to evaporate. Oh, yeah. Well, that, that happened to I, I, my job in 2000 was I was a consultant for other dot-coms. When the dot-com money dried up, so did my job. The minute that happens, I think it learns a lot of lessons. Now, at the same time, we talked about this two years ago, actually, was does that make you not as aggressive as you'd be if you were naive, Right. There's a point where, having not lived through that, maybe you're going to take risks that the rest of us wouldn't make because we've we've been burned in the past. And I've come out on the belief that, as a founder, you actually don't need more incentive to be reckless in your bet making because, as a founder, you're just, by definition, you're self-selecting as a very reckless um, bet maker. Having controls on how you go about it is actually quite important. Um, I do think that there are certain kinds of businesses where. Like, like mobile apps with Snapchat. I mean, you have to be irrationally exuberant to even start those companies because they all fail. And if you get lucky and you win, you know, and, and we, we started enterprise businesses. Um, and, you know, statistically speaking, the, 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 the more you've done this and the later you're on your career, the more likely you are to go after more predictable businesses like B2B sales instead of creating the next hot consumer brand. Um, which I don't think is by accident. I think we all want to take risks. We just learn about the kind of levers we can control and we start to lean on those a little bit more over time. I didn't intend to start an enterprise business. I thought we were a fun, bottoms-up, freemium company. And I was like, huh, we're not. It's You learn those things by doing. Uh, I actually thought, you know, two years ago at this, I thought Outlier, one of our core markets would be smaller companies because in our customer development research, we found that 
small businesses didn't have a lot of time to look through their data. So having something like Outlier, which could analyze their, their data for them, would actually be a core market. And it turned out that was true. The problem was once they started using it, they realized they had no time to act on what we told them. Yeah. And so uh, that it took maybe two months to figure that out. We're like, okay, going after the bigger businesses now. <laughs> this is again, this is trial and error. You find over time as you test these things that customers will tell you one thing, but until they're confronted with the reality, you never really know what's oh, yeah. going to happen there. And so, in a lot of these cases, you have to try it to find out what the real answer is. Yeah, I mean, people that people never want to say that you're ugly is boring or uninteresting. Well, they also they also map it. I, I'll tell you one of the interesting challenges of, of Outlier early on was. This idea of, of a system that automatically analyzes your business was so intriguing and so interesting, but so new that people's expectations would take off about their imagining what it could possibly do. And it got it, it would it could get out of hand very quickly. And we just weren't very good at expectation setting because you get so caught up in the excitement about customers have for your product that it's hard to be like, that's great, but listen, that's actually not what we do today. Like you want people to be excited about what you do. And now we're extraordinarily good at expectation setting because it's so important as part of the sales cycle to say, listen, the potential of what we're doing in a few years is going to be immense. But right now, this is what it can do for you today. And this is why you should buy this and that. And that, that expectation setting is another one of those lessons where there's no way I prior to know which way people's expectations would go, right? You could easily imagine that their expectations go the other way and be like, I don't think this will work. Prove to me this, this will work. I don't. But once you do it, you start learning and you start adjusting and you figure out what works. You lean into that more and you just get that engine going. Um, so what's the funniest thing that's happened at Outlier? We actually have a, a quote board of all the funny things that have happened. Oh. I want to save them <laughs> for posterity. I will tell you, this is kind of just an ongoing anecdote. In the early days when it was just Mike and I, we were working at his house. We got into his car to drive to lunch and we're driving and a squirrel runs across the road. And a while later, Mike goes, man, that was that was almost a squirrel squish. <laughs> and I thought he was talking about some sort of term for startup stuff that I didn't know about. I was like, a squirrel squish. I need to pretend I've done this before. I should pretend like I know what that is. I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that sales <laughs> call was almost a squirrel squish. That was, I'm going to go look that up on Urban Dictionary later. <laughs> and he, later on, after talking about this for a while, he realized that I thought he was talking about something. He's like, no, no, I meant the actual squirrel. We almost squished the squirrel. <laughs> So from then on, um, we, we have a term, a squirrel squish, which will refer to something in the startup life cycle. We just haven't decided what it is yet. But we've agreed that at some point, something will happen, and Mike will turn to me and say, see, that that was a squirrel squish. <laughs> the, the, funny, the story about our first investor update was a good one. So we raised our, our seed round in 2015. I can't remember if it was before or after we spoke last. Um, but I've always been very cost conscious. Yes, and so notoriously our, so. So we, our, we we raised money, but we weren't going to spend any of it. So our first, um, you know, our burn rate around then was like two hundred dollars a month. And so I sent out our first. I've always been very diligent. I think it's important to educate your investors about how you're doing every month. Update them the good and the bad. They can't help you if you don't tell them what's going on. And frankly, they've invested in you. They have the right to know how you're doing. And it's also good discipline. Yeah, I do it to, for it's, me. It's good to summarize what you're doing. And so we sent out the investor update, I was, and, and I always include the metrics, and we burned $200, so our burn rate was $200. And one of our investors was very, very concerned, and he sent me this email back to, to ask about, listen, you know, I really believe in you, but is this responsible? Do you think you're doing a good job? And I thought he was joking. Right? <laughs> it's like $200 a month, it doesn't seem like irresponsible to me. So we go back and forth for a while, and then I realized that he, he thought there was a K, yeah. $200,000 a month. 
So I emailed him back one more time and I was like, there's no K in that. And he, he was like, oh. And apparently this was an hysterical thing across all of our investors that they were like, they were tricking each other being like, oh yeah, outliers burn rates up to 200. They're like, $200,000 a month? Like, no, $200. And everybody's like, oh, that's funny. I'm but, always really careful in my updates to say K and M. Because I've screwed it up, and like I've gotten some very concerned emails a couple times. <laughs> and it's it's always good to have people mistaking you for spending more money than you're actually spending, but never good in the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll say like with a K and with an M. Um, well, this is a funny personal story. So I um, I give a lot of talks on feature flagging. Um, so I go to a lot of conferences. Really? Why would that be? Uh, I'm, where I'm trying to educate the market. Ah. You know, it's so I was acting as our own. It's as if you know a feature flagging company. Well, I mean, so I was acting as our own dev advocate basically for a while. I was flying around to give all these talks. And while I was giving talks, you know, talk to other people and see what they thought about the market. So I had flown to Sydney to give a talk on feature flagging. And I went to like a conference happy hour type thing. You know, and I'm chatting with the guy next to me. And I said, you know, um, I'm here to give a talk on feature flagging. What do you think about feature flagging? You know, because I'm trying to test, are people familiar with this concept? He's like, oh, feature flagging. Yeah. Do you know there's a company in Silicon Valley who does that? And I assume he's talking about one of our competitors or something. And he's like, yeah, there's this company called um, LaunchDarkly. And he pulls out his phone and he shows me my own website. And then he starts talking about LaunchDarkly's strategy. He's like, well, they're attacking this market this way. I think they're doing this. I think they're doing this. And I'm just sitting there and I'm just like, this is funny. <laughs> and then at which point Edith pulled out her pen and autographed his phone and handed it back to him. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I could correct him, but this is funny and I'm getting a lot of like free intel. So That's this went awesome. on for about 10 minutes and he's just telling me all about my company. And then finally he looks at me. I had said up front, like I'm here to give a talk on feature flagging. Sure. And he looks at me, he's like, CEO of Launch Darkly is a female. You're a female. Are you the CEO? And I'm like, <laughs> That's awesome, and it was hilarious. And um, and I saw that same guy a year later at the same conference, and it was, it was just like, yeah, you should have told me far earlier. And I was like, dude, it was really funny. And so, Edith, you've achieved what you said you could not achieve: is you become famous. No, I was not famous at all. I was completely <laughs> anonymous. <laughs> That's why I loved it. Like, if I'd said I'm the CEO of Launch Darkly, we do feature flagging. Like, he wouldn't have said all this stuff. He so just this is said. important. If you're listening to this podcast and you see Edith on the street, you have to come up to her and tell her that she's a celebrity because otherwise she won't believe us. Uh, <laughs> well, because it's it's what you said about Outlier. That's what reminded me of the story. Is like, um, if you tell people this is your company, they're gonna be very biased in what they say back. Cause they don't want to hurt your feelings or they want to be excited. And if they don't think it's your company, they'll tell you what they really think. Yeah, it's true. So maybe that's the best lesson we can give everybody is try to try to avoid your own reality distortion bubble. Yeah, just like be an incognito. Anyway, thanks, Sean. No, thank you. This has been great connecting. And two years from now, we're going to come back, talk about the Launch Darkly IPO party and exactly how big it's going to be. $200. <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Caveat Founder, brought to you by Heavybit. Head over to heavybit.com to sign up to be notified when the next episode is available. And while you're there, check out our library. It's home to over 75 talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.